Thank you for joining us today for this conversation about reading for pleasure and motivation. I'm Mary Hamley from Oxford University Press and I'm joined by three eminent experts here today. And they are Sarah McGoon, who is a reading motivation expert, James Clements, who is an education, education writer and researcher, and Lindsay Picton, who is an independent primary English advisor. I'm going to start with a really open question, first of all, and that's simply, can you just start by talking about why you think reading for pleasure is so important? And I'm going to start with James again. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, well, I suppose, first of all, there's the functional aspects of being able to read and becoming a, you know, a strong reader. It gives you access to the world, doesn't it? It lets you navigate modern life. And so much of communication now happens through written form. Um, and of course, reading for pleasure, choosing to be a reader is one of the big drivers of becoming a better reader and a stronger reader. But I think probably we would, if we just stop there, we're really limiting what reading for pleasure does because yeah. the key word is pleasure. Hopefully what it does is it brings you enjoyment. It opens up your world, opens your horizons, lets you see all sorts of new, incredible things. So I think, you know, if you don't choose to read, if you're not someone that, that, that has found reading yet, you miss out on all these wonderful experiences that perhaps some of the rest of us get. Yeah, absolutely. Sarah? Um, so I think from a research perspective, there's been a lot of research that's seen a broad range of benefits that come from reading mm -hmm. books. So some of those are academic benefits. So reading for pleasure obviously develops children's reading skills, but also their language skills as well. So there's a concept of book language, that books expose us to a much more varied vocabulary than we would naturally encounter through day-to-day -day conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm also interested in the sort of social and emotional benefits that come from reading books. So the opportunity for children to see things, perhaps from other people's perspectives, perspectives, um, to see themselves reflected in what they read that can support identity development, to empathise with characters, but also to pursue their interests and perhaps learn new topics that interest them through non-fiction too. So I think there's a whole range of benefits that books offer that's really not offered by any other uh, medium. Mm, so many different sorts of things coming in there from, from both of you. Lindsay, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I'm, I'm just um, fascinated and a little obsessed with this kind of potential uh, virtuous circle of you love reading so you do more of it so you get better at it so you and, and round and round and round and so many of the children that I work with have uh, have the opposite experience they're not very good at it so they don't do it very often and and firing up a pleasure is a good way of breaking and 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 changing the direction of that circle and I just think that's such an exciting possibility because it is genuinely life-changing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we're talking about motivation today. And I wondered, how do you think motivation plays into reading for pleasure? Sarah? Well, I think, um, I think motivation is essential for reading for pleasure. So we can tell children to read as teachers or as parents we can tell them that they should be reading and what they should be reading but actually a lot of research shows the importance of intrinsic this internal desire to want to read and I think that's something that I'm particularly interested in because we know that when children are choosing to read of their own volition they're much more engaged in the books that they're reading and they're getting a lot more of the benefits out of them as well mm. so I think motivation is important but it's not enough Children can be motivated to read, but unless they have access to books which align with, the, with their interests, then they really, um, motivation can only get them so far. So motivation links into engagement and experiences mm. that then leads to positive outcomes. Mm. Mm. And how is that engagement secured? 
So I think in order to secure um, engagement, it's really important that children have access to books that reflect their interests, but also their um, abilities as well, um, and that children are really connected with the books that they read. Um, and as researchers, we often think about the concept of cognitive engagement. So when children are reading a book that they're really connected with, sometimes it could be quite challenging. But if they're cognitively engaged, they're more likely to try and work out words which maybe um, they, don't, they don't know, and so they're developing their reading and language skills in that way or they may be more likely to put into place strategies um, in order to support their understanding, for example, rereading parts of the text. Um, and so really having a book that you're interested in and that you feel connected with actually increases children's cognitive engagement, mm. um, but it also increases their emotional engagement with the book that they're reading too. Whether this is non-fiction, they get really excited about a topic um, that, that they're interested in, or they learn about something new that interests them, or whether it's a fiction book um, and they're really caught up in the story or the setting or the character too. Um, so it really is about finding that connection between the child and the book um, that really fosters high levels of engagement. Mm -hmm. James, did you yeah, want to come ask, in I, I wonder, linked to this, is whether calling it reading for pleasure almost does it a sort of slight disservice in that way because what you were saying there, it sounds like there's lots and lots of different motivators that might come from a book. Mm -hmm. And it might not always be, you know, warm, gentle pleasure or mm -hmm. chuckling away at a book that's immediately funny. It might be that, it, you know, it's really emotional and it yeah. really upsets you. Mm -hmm. But actually, that's an experience that makes you come back. Lots of people read books as adults, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Or maybe I think the cognitive one was really interesting, you know. I think sometimes there's an idea that reading for pleasure should be automatically sort of quite a straightforward book and I read it and I understand it and off I go. But actually that thing of sort of struggling with something that's quite tricky yeah. and putting the effort in and making mm -hmm. sense of it, maybe a poem, for example, maybe that gives you, you know, a different kind of pleasure mm -hmm. that could almost have solved the problem perhaps. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. absolutely. Sort of, you know, a big hearty meal rather than sort of instant fast food. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I mean, reading for pleasure is a term which is used widely, but I think we also think about things such as reading for empowerment and actually how empowering reading can be as well. Um, and interesting, actually, research has shown that even quite sad narratives can be quite pleasurable to children yeah. as well. So it's not necessarily just about finding something that makes you laugh or mm. connecting, but actually different types of stories can bring about different types of emotional mm. responses, which may feel quite sad or you're sympathising, but actually it's a, a positive thing. Um, and children also talk about the opportunity to work through things which may be quite difficult in their lives as well through reading and that's not necessarily reading for pleasure but actually maybe seeing someone else who's experienced something similar to themselves and seeing how they've got through that and actually finding that that's been quite empowering and helpful to them. Um, so I think reading for pleasure maybe does narrow the focus mm -hmm. and does mislead people a little bit. Yeah, depending on how you define pleasure. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. And, in, and the, the effort and the engagement can be pleasurable in themselves. You know, yeah. that we, we enjoy things that we can enjoy things that are quite hard work. But it's fascinating to hear your research um, aspects because immediately two anecdotes came into my mind. One, the boy I taught in the 90s, who um, a particular series of books were very, very popular at the time. And he was a really struggling reader in year five. And he really wanted to read because everyone else was reading them. Mm -hmm. And he just clawed his way up. And he's, you know, we were using reading ages in those. And in about six months, he went up two years in his reading age, which obviously I took the credit for as his class teacher. But, but it, was, he, it was him wanting to read these, this series of books that everyone else was reading. And then years later, in my, my current role, I was talking to a head teacher who described his kind of 
autodidactic reading, like he had struggled with reading, and someone gave him a second-hand copy of Kipling's Just So Stories, which he found really hard, but he wanted to read them so much that he clawed his way up through this stuff and became a reader of classics, you know, from nowhere, in, uh, from a much more struggling background, which is precisely what you're describing, isn't yeah, it? That he's pro both, in both cases, they're problem-solving through a desire. Yeah. yeah, and I think what's interesting about the, both of those cases is that it's choice, isn't it? Yeah. So no one said, here's the yeah. Just So stories, go on and I'll give you some questions about that later yeah. on. It's, I found this, I've chosen it, and I'm going to invest the time and the effort and the energy that needs to go into that. So clearly choice must be quite a big yeah. a big driver. Yeah, yeah. it's like, the, do you know the um, was it Rights of the Reader by Pennock? Yeah. You know, yeah. they're opening sentences that like you can't make someone read just like you can't make them fall in love or dream mm -hmm. you know like go to your room and dream you can't it doesn't Absolutely. you know and it's ex that's such a nice description of what we're talking about I think and I think very often when we think about reading engagement it's like let's just get children reading as much as we possibly yeah. can and having a book in front of them but actually when children have a book in front of them and they're not interested in it or enjoying it in any way there's absolutely no benefits which are being accrued and actually all children are learning is that reading isn't something for yes. them um, and so we really need to be thinking not just about time spent in front of a book or a child yeah. with a book in their hands but actually how do we foster that depth of engagement that they will want to return to books after and take a book home and read it afterwards too um, and I think that's what I really like about Readerful is that it's thinking about this sort of deeper level um, and trying to really engage children with, with books. And you know we're talking about challenge as being a positive thing and it being absolutely pleasurable when you overcome that challenge but what if you've got children who really really can't read, mm. what, what do you do then to get them reading for pleasure? Who can I ask first? Oh, probably Lindsay, <laughs> okay, actually. Yeah. I mean, it's, first of all, know the child, because there are so many different reasons why you might be in that situation. And we are, I know we're talking particularly children of kind of junior phase here in particular. So um, it might be, we might say in the early stages of reading, but also having been had, having a go at it. So there's, a, there's potentially what we might loosely call baggage around that. So it might be that the skills are in place, but they just dislike the whole process. It might be that the skills aren't in place at all for all kinds of reasons. So you could spend ages just listing, listing those or a combination or something like that. So, you know, bad experience. And I find it so useful in these situations to think about, well, what if it was a swimming lesson? Why would a child not want to jump in the water? Can they not do it? Have they done it before and hated it? You know, there are so many, are they embarrassed about their swimming style? You know, there are so many, and so we need to know the child, what's going on, are they are they unable to read the words? Are they are they able to read words, but not with any fluency? Are they not able to engage with the content, the subject matter? Are they do they read it and it, it doesn't mean anything to them, or they, it, they, they understand it, but they hate it? You know, there and what's the atmosphere in the room at the time? You know, so it's, it's finding the child and, and finding the right stuff for them, I suppose. Yeah, some personalization. Definitely, there has to be an element of that within reading. Yeah. I mean, certainly you can you can win children around in a whole class way with a really lovely text and a really talented teacher doing what teachers do so well, engaging children with wonderful texts. You can win children around, but then you still have to look at, okay, if that doesn't lead to a child then reading independently, why not? There isn't one answer. We have to find out what's what's the stumbling blocks here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Anything yeah. to add there? Yeah, picking up that, I think, it, although it's not always perfect, that showcasing mm -hmm. is a really good first step. And if you think about a class with, you know, different children with different attitudes towards reading, really good shared reading or really good reading aloud with an amazing text is a really good way of kind of scooping up, you know, the 
the first layer, the first tranche, before we then start worrying about other people who perhaps, you know, there are deeper issues around why they perhaps don't see reading as for them. So, you know, I think if we can, if we can do everything we can to some, almost market a book by reading it aloud, by talking about it, and then making sure there's almost that trail of breadcrumbs that follow it. Did you like that? Well, you know, one of you is going to be allowed to borrow it. I'm not sure which one it will be, but one of you can, and they fight, you know, to be the person. But no, don't worry, I've got three more copies. Here we go, and the rest of you, you can sign up for it here on my list. And that idea of kind of, you know, the excitement that it's coming at some point can be a really nice motivator. Mm. Mm. I think um, just to echo some of the points that Lindsay made around it being really important to know the individual child and there's so many different reasons why a child might be struggling with reading or maybe disengaged with reading and I think it's really important that we sort of disentangle the idea of what it means to be a, a good reader with mm. being a successful reader as well because actually there's a lot of skills involved not just in being able to read but actually know, knowing the kinds of books that you do and don't like mm. and I think encouraging children to recognise that there are lots of different ways in which they can and should be developing as readers is really important too. So we've just um, finished the Love to Read project which had six underpinning principles within it and one of the principles was this concept of success and one of the things that the teacher said that really resonated a lot with the struggling readers was that they actually could see how they were developing as readers. They were becoming more confident choosing books that they liked or didn't like. They knew their own reading preferences. They felt comfortable saying, no, that book's not for me as well. Um, and so I think it is really important that, um, that children who struggle with reading, we understand for what that reason is, but also that they have access to books which really reflect their interests, but are at the right reading level for them as well. Mm. Um, because I think very often the, the needs of children who struggle with reading are often neglected within school book provision. Mm. So Readful Rise, for example, is a great example of the sort of high interest but lower reading skill books. Um, and I think that's a really important way of making sure that children have better provision of books that they will be interested in, that they won't be embarrassed to read because they look like babyish books mm. as well. Um, so yeah, just to echo, I, I think that you need to understand the individual child um, and recognise that children have, if they're struggling readers, they've maybe got a really long history of negative experiences with reading as well. And so you shouldn't expect there to be a quick fix. It will require a lot of support and a lot of scaffolding for the child as well. Um, and some things maybe can be done at a whole class level, but actually a bit of individual support um, with that child, I think is really important. And honesty in that, uh, yeah. being honest, not not saying this is great you're going to love it it's, yeah. it's easy all of those sorts of things yeah. it's so important be open and honest. this could be quite hard work but it's really worth it and i'll show you. even look at this good bit you know let, let, you know sort of showing them if you if you soldier on through this bit i mean to be honest i've had that experience as an adult you know with, with books where somebody has said to me it's quite a tough read until you get to about page 75 and then it all you know yeah. it's, and if that if i hadn't been told that I'd yeah. have given up, yeah, yeah. even as an adult. Yeah, yeah. I think not just speaking to the child, but actually listening to the child yeah. as well. So yeah, they feel like so. the teacher is listening to me and they understand why I don't like reading or why I'm struggling with, read with reading and they're really going to provide that support. Because I think very often it's easy to speak to children, but actually listening and really helping them find their voice because sometimes they don't know what it is they don't like about reading. And so having those conversations can help them to understand what, the, what that might be. And it may be they've just never found a book that they've liked. And that's the first step is to help them find that. OK, so how do you think then we support children to choose books that they enjoy? 
so I think there's a lot of different strategies we can use. And one of the ways in which I often think about reading is books offering different types of experiences. So mm. books can take us on adventure, they can make us laugh, they can be exciting. And so one of the first things that you might want to do is just to get a child to think about what are you in the mood for? Like what type of experience mm. do you want to be brought on? And I think very often children go to a bookshelf without thinking, first of all, about what sort of book am I in the mood for? Mm. Um, and so I think within the Readful Teacher resources, we've encouraged that sort of initial reflection or what topic do I want to learn more about? Um, but then, of course, there are different strategies that we can use to support children. Um, the title, the blurb, reading the first few pages or reading random pages within the book, of course, these are strategies mm. that can be helpful. Um, but I think very often children feel that once they've got a book that they're really committed to it. Um, and actually, sometimes even as adults, when we read a book, we're maybe a few chapters in and we're just not enjoying it and we just don't feel that that's going to change. Mm. And part of developing a love of reading is actually knowing the types of books that you do mm. and don't like mm. and feeling confident that you've given a book a go and that you're quite confident to, to maybe swap it for something else. Else. Yeah, and not feeling like a failure. Exactly. Because you don't yeah, like it. it's like yeah. you just know yourself yeah. as a reader, and there's plenty of other books available. Mm. Um, but I also think that teachers and peers play an important role as well in terms of recommending books to each other. Mm. Um, mm. And there's a lot of research around kind of reading communities within the classroom, and I think that's often that sort of peer-to-peer -peer suggestions mm. can really help to support choice. Um, too. So there's lots of different strategies that, that teachers can use and I think it's particularly important for children who perhaps struggle with reading or who haven't had a lot of experience in choosing books that these approaches mm. are scaffolded and supported um, and not to assume that if you've taught them once at the beginning of the year that mm. children will continue to do them throughout the year. There may be some revisiting I suppose that's required mm. to make sure children still feel confident choosing books they'd enjoy. Yeah. I suppose it's just it's practically carving out the time for that, isn't it? Yeah. Because, you know, when you think about the reading curriculum, there's here we are learning to read. Here we are. I'm reading to you. Here you are. You guys are all sitting there reading quietly, hopefully a little bit of social reading as well. Mm -hmm. But carving out that time where a teacher's free to actually sit and, and spot someone, you know, has changed their book eight times yeah. in the last seven days and to better say, you know, is there anything I can do to help you with this? Should we have a little look together? What about this? What about this one? What was the last one you enjoyed? Oh, it was this. And off we go. So it's almost finding a window there. So the teacher's a really active part mm. of that. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. of course, the school librarian as well. And of course, as you say, peers as well. Yeah. Mm. yeah. No, absolutely. I'd agree completely. I think teachers' days are absolutely packed. And so the mm. idea that they also have to focus on this, I think, is probably something which might be quite, um, yeah, quite difficult for them to carve mm. out that time to do it. Um, but at the same time, I think one of the things that we found from the Love to Read project was that teachers really recognised that children just didn't have the strategies to choose books and actually giving children that agency and that independence gives them far less to do afterwards. And they spoke yeah. about children being much more engaged with the books that they were reading. And children spoke about reading more outside of home, but outside mm. of school, which again takes away time within the classroom, yeah. but actually supporting that volitional reading outside of school mm. as well. So I do think it's an important investment in time, although I recognise that it's an additional thing yeah. that teachers might be asking um, us to do. But James talks a lot about um, how important it is uh, to, to encourage that kind of behaviour because it is. it feels like, um, I, I, like I think you say like a soft thing but actually it just improves so many other aspects it's like it's like investing time in touch typing that will speed everything up but yeah. we, we don't invest time in touch typing perhaps but it's interesting again listening to you both talking about choice because what comes back to me is um, being a class teacher and 
and children have got time in the school library or we sometimes take them to the public library and you're kind of going, come on, hurry up, hurry up. And, and it's so the opposite of what we do if we go to a library or a bookshop. And, but, and crucially, I think the major thing that I never did as a class teacher is, like, if I go to a bookshop or a library, I kind of know where I'm going before I've arrived. You know, and I don't go, look at all these thousands of books, where shall I start? All equal, uh, they're all the same. Yeah, not, yeah, you, know, you know what shelves, when you go into a bookshop or a library, you know what shelves you're going to, but, yeah. but, and you've decided before you walk through the front door. And that's a key skill, mm -hmm. isn't it? Because how many children go to libraries and, and bookshops? out? There? Very, very few, actually, isn't it? They're outside of, outside of being taken there by a teacher. It's not something mm -hmm. that, that is hugely uh, common outside of, school at all yeah. and also the, the thing that's I think is it's really worth talking about this right now is that I think a lot of those practices even uh, school libraries died off with Covid and lockdowns and so on you know a lot of schools I've, I've encountered schools in the last academic year whose libraries were still we don't go there it's it kind of got closed and and they're dusty and uh, but and now schools are starting to look at that and I know schools now going to local public libraries and so on so it's a quite a good time to start rethinking about how we use them and teaching children that sort of we think about it before we've even set foot in there that because that's what readers do it's one of those things that readers do isn't it? yeah sort of absolutely and, it, and it's restoring that sense of special isn't it this is a really special thing so I grew up in a little tiny village school didn't have a library and he had three classes it's about 40 children in the whole school but the, the um i think it was every fortnight the library bus would appear and the library bus was like a van just decked out with books and you were unleashed for like 15 minutes in there and it was like absolute heaven it was the best thing in the world it was this sort of sense of sort of special you know that this thing would appear and in you would go so i think almost sort of ring fencing the time as being this wonderful brilliant time which you know going back to what we're saying on it it isn't for every child but you know even just the the choosing and the the going somewhere else to do something can be a really wonderful exciting thing yeah. yeah i definitely think making libraries or reading corners quite welcoming and inviting spaces is important and not having too much choice yeah. um, and i know um, again through the love to read project teachers said that they pretty much half their library because they recognized that there were lots of books there that children just weren't reading yeah. and actually that really supported children to make choices of books that they liked and they found it much easier to so find books as well they overwhelmed. so they weren't yeah, overwhelmed but also a lot of school libraries are filled with books that maybe haven't been read in a very long time as well. Um, and I think there's a desire to keep as many books on the shelves as possible. But actually, schools need to put in place the structure to support ch children's choice. It's not just about giving them the skills. It's about that organisation. Do you organise things by genre or by topics? How do you make sure that the, that the books that are available really um, do reflect the sorts of things that children are interested in as well? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, here we go. Uh, I was just going to say anecdotally, purely about the um, thinned out library. Just a wonderful story from a school. I was, um, when I was a local authority advisor, we were having a bit of a push on school libraries. And one, one school had, was investing a lot of money decorating and, you know, but also stock. And the best anecdote ever was that they, uh, the English lead and one or two other people, whether it was over a half term or something, I can't remember, but they did this massive thinning out activity. Mm -hmm. And they hadn't got the new books yet 
But when the children came back, they were all excited about their new library. Yeah. And they had all the books that they'd already had. They just had fewer of them. Yeah. And, the, and it worked amazingly. And they hadn't even yeah. bought any this new books yet. This sounds really cheap as well. <laughs> <five, two laughs> yeah. No, but it is. It's, it's the change. It's the novelty. It's the excitement. Yeah. It's the fact that something's happening, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, if you, if you go and visit schools where, you know, they've spent lots of time and energy on this, it's not just the books itself and the kind of knowledgeable staff and the children supporting each other. It's, it's how they're displayed. So you walk in and it just feels like yeah. a like a bookshop, like a little tiny bookshop. And, you know, the books are displayed facing outwards and there's a table with we recommend and our little piles of recommendations. Mm -hmm. it's such a simple thing, just moving things around a little bit. And then they become noticeable and they become, you know, sort of desirable objects. Yeah. So, you know, what we're doing is we're framing them as being a desirable thing to pick up and read. Hopefully at the same time we're reading aloud to them. So we're seeing that actually what's inside is really exciting and really interesting and, you know, really moving or whatever as well. Question about that then. As a publisher, I'd like to know what should be in a book? What, what, what are we looking for in a book that is going to be motivating for children? Is, is it possible to say that? Who would like to start? I think there are so many different children with so many different preferences and interests that it's really difficult. And, and so I think diversity is key mm -hmm. um, in just ensuring that all children will be able to find books within a, a series that really reflects the things that they're interested in. Um, and then giving them skills to move beyond any reading scheme to be able to apply the, the things that they've learned through the diverse collection that they've had access to so that they can sort of path out their own journey as readers. Because actually... Every single one of us has a very individual and unique experience with reading. No one person has read exactly the same chain of books in another. Um, and each time we read a new book, we bring something of our own life experiences, but also literary experiences to the books that we read as well. And so it's really difficult to say that there are key ingredients. It's actually just about recognising that people like different things. Um, yeah. Yeah. Could you bring anything? Would you, would you say there any, anything that it would need to have? would need to have yeah. I don't know I mean I, it, it, you could find the most boring front covered book in the world and somewhere on page 97 there'll just be one word one phrase one idea mm. that will just resonate with someone mm. equally you have the most glorious glorious beautiful looking thing and you know it, it doesn't quite catch the person that you've written for mm -hmm. so I suppose yeah. it's that it's that breadth and it's knowing how to navigate that breadth, which, as you mm. said, you know, takes a while to learn. It's a skill just like learning to read is. Yeah, yeah, um, Lindsay. I, th I think, you know, with all this diversity and not knowing and, you know, as we were saying before about going into a bookshop or a library and there's all this stuff, there's so much stuff to choose from. Going back to, I think, probably it's not the book, it's the recommendation, isn't it? Like, what do you do? I mean, when you go to really good bookshops, for example, there are things written by booksellers often, aren't there? And they, that's quite useful, isn't it? Because you go, you kind of look at, you know, yeah, I think I trust them. And, and having that sort of thing and peer recommendation, I think is absolutely yeah, crucial. Exactly. I know the, the um, updated reading framework has a, has a lot about teacher recommendation and of course, but peer recommendation, I think is, yeah. I mean, if, if I, if I could have my way, I think if, school, if, if in a school, if, if child A successfully recommends a book to child B that they genuinely like, I would give child A like a, a gold-plated certificate <laughs> in assembly with fireworks going off, you know, because that, again, potentially life-changing. The right book at the right time. If someone says to you, you're going to like this and you like it, that's amazing, isn't it? And that's, so it's, it's, there's so many different things going on in books for different children. When somebody you kind of trust, their judgment says, try this book. Yeah. That's the thing, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. I went to visit a school years and years ago and uh, they had a really nice project that they had some money 
oh, money, imagine that. <laughs> but um, they had some money to set aside to restock um, their school library. And rather than choose the children that were really keen readers already, they choose a little sort of group of children who perhaps didn't see reading as, as, as for them always. And they took them to the bookshop and in their town and said, like, come and have a look around, see what you think, what should we get for our library? And so these children were sort of unleashed, like collecting these piles of books, let's get that, let's get that. Mm -hmm. And they kind of came back. And then they were given the job of presenting these books to the class and they went around the classes with this little trolley, wheeling them out saying, we've chosen this, yeah. it looks absolutely amazing. And suddenly this little group of boys, and I'm afraid it was boys, mm -hmm. suddenly were like the reading experts yeah. from nowhere. So, you know. Yeah. I've had exactly that experience, actually, not myself personally, but somebody um, uh, in a school we were supporting, I'll name him Lee Christie, fantastic idea. Um, he took six mm -hmm. boys who were able to read, they were year six boys, able to read but not keen, you know, they're so can but don't, those sorts of can but don't read. And um, he took them to, he made an afternoon of it in school time, got release and so on. So there was an expense in that. Um, but he took those six boys. Oh, and they were specifically, they were kind of cool, you know, so they were, they were sort of role models for other people's, not necessarily the role models you choose, but they're nonetheless role models. But he took them afternoon out that involved, you know, like hot chocolate and a biscuit at the cafe and then into a, into a bookshop. And he, um, if I remember rightly, this is more than 10 years ago, he said, you've each got 20 pounds. You've got to buy three books, one that you would like to read, one that a girl would like to read, and one that a younger reader would like to read. And um, I think he also did a thing that the bookshop has offered us 15% off on your year six, so you've got to calculate that as well, which is quite a nice thing. But they presented those each. So there were 18 books being presented in assembly that week. And those boys, instead of being famous for like being tough and playing football, they were famous for books. So potentially life-changing for them, but also 18 massively popular books suddenly yeah, with not yeah. too much money. You know, that's some money, but not extravagant. No. This connects up with, I think it connects up with your idea about the importance of making reading social, Sarah. Yeah, absolutely. So I was just thinking before we get onto social, the idea of school book provision and actually you need to have children's input into the types of books mm. that are bought from school. So if there is a budget, that actually children have a say in which books um, come in. Um, but I think there's a lot around the sort of social aspects of reading. And I think it's really important to recognise that a lot of children maybe not don't have the skills or the confidence to be able to share and discuss books mm. with others. And also some children may just not want to as well. Mm. So it's about having sort of inclusive ways for children to feel that they are sharing their opinions, but in ways that really uh, matter to them as well. Um, again, through the Love to Read project, one of the children said, I don't like talking about books with others because I'm afraid that they'll spoil it for me, <laughs> which is something that I'd never considered before because we're always trying to encourage book talk. Yeah. But actually, this is something that, that actually children literally do not want to hear someone else talk about yeah. a book because they don't want a spoiler. Um, so I think these social aspects of reading are really important in addition to the sort of the individual emotional response that um, children can have when they read books. And again, thinking about what, like adults who join a book group, what do they do? You know, I mean, obviously, cheese and wine or whatever you can't introduce into the classroom, but 
but you don't sit around and take turns to read it. You know, yeah, <laughs> you, you, yeah. you're just, you're talking around, you're talking about the book, but you're talking around the book, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. And I think giving children the sort of, um, talk about sort of sentence stems, so starting a sentence in a certain way, because I think sometimes they just don't know how to start those conversations off. And sometimes that can feel a little prescriptive initially, but it's just about getting them going. And then once they feel more confident that they're just able to to talk about books in, in ways which don't feel so regimented, I guess. And I think picking up what you said earlier on, it's not just doing it once and thinking, yeah. brilliant, we've done that. We've all got book talk. We know how to make recommendations. <laughs> it's that regular drip, yeah. drip, drip of returning to it. So it just becomes normal. This yeah. is what we do. Yeah. We're the sort of people that if we read something good and I think Josh might like it, well, you know, I'll tell him about it. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. so ultimately the teacher might be the kind of orchestrator at the beginning, mm -hmm. but slowly, hopefully, they can move backwards and backwards till eventually you have this wonderful reading community. Yeah. And then you might have two or three that are not quite ready to join the community yet. But then as a teacher, that's where your focus can go. Yeah. And if you've got the rest gently taking care of themselves. That's a, mm. a really nice position to be in. Mm. And when you see that spilling into break time and lunch time when they're yeah. talking about books as well, which which can happen too. I mean, then you know that you've had some success that's there it, as well. Playing books. Yeah. You've got a class novel and you're reading it, and then and they start see, playing absolutely. it. Absolutely. Uh -huh, definitely. Yeah. And have you seen schools where this has worked, and you've there's been a transition from a not very enthusiastic classroom to one which is reading a lot? Um, I think, I mean, again, I'm just talking about the Love to Read project because we've just finished it, but that had um, six principles, I suppose, which underpinned the programme. And one of them was around um, success, uh, social, sorry. Um, and the teacher spoke about it in the break time, children like making dens under the tables and reading books. And the teacher just said, I didn't think this was going to be a thing, but actually it did spill out into break time and lunchtime, um, as well as children choosing to be more outside of school. So I do think if teachers have deeper knowledge of the sort of principles and practices to support motivation and engagement, you can see real change, I think, in terms of children's attitudes, their behaviours, but also their skills around book choice as well. Um, yeah, I'm convinced actually that you, that you can see real changes. Yeah. yeah. Which I think is full circle, brings us right back to what we're talking about at the beginning, which is, you know, once you've got this, you've invested the time, what seems very soft, you know, let's learn how to talk about books, let's learn how to share recommendations with each other. But actually if that starts that reading bug, and then in turn, someone spends a lot of time reading, the, you know, the implications both academically and socially just yeah. are far, far reaching, yeah. you know, just from that tiny little seed that's yeah, been planted. Yeah, self-generating. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And you hope that, you know, you might have a particular class doing that or a particular school doing that, mm. but then that, you know, seed dispersal disappears off when someone goes to secondary or moves up to the next class or whatever it might yeah. be. Yeah. And can I ask you what you think about the role of um, levelled books in, in reading? Lindsay, maybe if I start with you. Yeah, I think um, the crucial thing, and in the context of well, we're talking about junior phase children, the, the, the crucial thing is that um, you've got uh, this, this maybe positive, maybe negative, but you've got an experience of a scheme when you're younger, or pretty much everybody in some form or other. And there is that risk of they come off, come away from that and then you're a free reader. Mm -hmm. And I've always joked with teachers that some children think that means I'm free of reading. You know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have to do it anymore because I've, I've, I've completed that. I don't have to do mm -hmm. that thing. Um, and then if you're not from a family that is, has a background in, you know, regular reading and all those mm -hmm. sorts of things, it's just complete. It, I was going to say minefield, but it's not a minefield. It's, it's something much more complicated than that, isn't it? It's, it is like a wonderful library like this, but all the books are just metaphorically chucked all over the floor and you choose a book to read and what you're meant to do. And I think having, having a structure 
you know, whether it's tight or loose, but having a structure to guide children. Um, is it, um, I can't remember the book it's in, but D. Reed, I think, wrote it, um, uh, saying, you know, that children can feel like there's no, they've, they've no map for the reading journey ahead. Right. And, and level texts provide that map yeah. that they, you know, because yeah. that, because that's what that's what's going on. There is a, um, it doesn't have to be. You have to read this color and then this color and so on. It doesn't have to be as as progressive as that by the time they're that age. But it does give them some structure. And mm-hmm. with children who are, uh, you know, reasonably fluent, they can they can move in and out of that. They don't have to stick rigidly to that. But it's a structure you can fall back on. Yeah. You know, and I think it's that sort of structure that we see with with different um, completely away from leveled books and schemes. You know. Whether it's Harry Potter or I don't know Goosebumps or you know whatever, children have a thing very often that they like to read, and because I'm reading that, I don't have to worry about what's next. Mm-hmm. You know that I know what, and so a, a, a solid, levelled scheme of some kind like that can help children with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would that would definitely have been me in primary school. I was mm-hmm. big uh, I, in primary school. Definitely once I'd kind of learnt to read through a comic, it was certain series of books mm-hmm. that I didn't vary from, you know, because I'd have just fallen off and never been seen again, I think, you know. So having that kind of structure definitely takes the risk out of it. Yeah, maybe. yeah, and also um, gives you a, a hope of success, doesn't yeah, it? Absolutely. And make yeah. feel. Because success, I know, is something we've spoken about a little bit, haven't we, that that wonderful feeling of being successful and, and that being motivating in itself. Oh, and, and going back to that, sorry, yeah. um, that as somebody who was struggling with reading around about the age of seven, I can remember very well-meaning aunts and uncles type mm-hmm. th- having Christmas presents there. Oh, this is a classic, you'll love it. And just bouncing off it, just not having anything to bring to it. It's not the sort of thing, even though I'd started reading, you know, if I was, if I'd started reading at that stage, it was probably Doctor Who books were my first novel of choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then someone gives you a, you know, a, a, a well-loved classic. Yeah you just don't have the tools at all. And I bounced off it and felt like a failure. Yeah. And I remember one of them I even hid. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not a love of reading, is it? <laughs> but I mean, fortunately, I still had Doctor Who to fall because there are a lot of those. <laughs> I, I agree entirely. I think leveled books that maybe don't look so much like leveled yeah, books as well, absolutely. I think are really important. But I think it does offer that kind of safe space and that, yeah. again, when children finish a book, sometimes they don't, you're right, they don't know where to go next. And so I think series are really popular in that way or, or popular authors as well. But I think a level book helping them with their progression um, and knowing that they're having success in terms of that they know that they'll be able to read the book and understand the book. It may be slightly challenging, but actually it's at the right level for them. I think that's really important, especially in the primary school um, years as well, and particularly for children who maybe don't find it quite easy easy to pick books that really align with their abilities. Mm, mm. James, do you have anything on that? I suppose just to pick up the point you both made about series of books and how motivating mm. they are, both of my children uh, both loved a particular series and would just, you know, mainline every single one mm. and go and like try and source it from somewhere. And I think for, for teachers or for parents, it's that thing of that, that's absolutely brilliant and you really love that clearly. Mm but other books are available. So, you know, you write this kind of difficult tightrope, don't you, between saying it's great that you're reading, you know, the 94th version of that, pretty much the same story. But, you know, there is another one. Have you thought about this? Have you looked at this? Mm. And, you know, part of me thinks, okay, I should be sort of nudging them away. And part of me thinks, well, look, they're really enjoying it. And, you know, if I want to really enjoy something, then leave me alone to do it. Mm. So, yeah, it's always this fine line, isn't there? And that's, I suppose, where it, it comes 
back to what you said at the beginning about respecting children, mm -hmm. about actually having that conversation with them, that honest conversation, rather than sort of trying to manipulate them into leaving mm -hmm. that series and reading this other thing mm -hmm. or reading this book that's going to better them somehow. Yeah. It's saying that you've read quite a lot of those and you really like them. Da, 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 da. Yeah. So, and, and keep going with it, but yeah. maybe try this as well. And that's where I think if you've got something, as you say, that doesn't look leveled, but it, then if you do want to recommend something that's significantly different to that series, at least you'll know it's at the right level and they're not going to bounce yeah. off it you know that the that so you've got that sort of safety net of the structure is is in place i suppose mm. Mm. lindsay you were saying about being confronted with a book that you couldn't read mm. and how that how that made you feel and, and what would you say about books that we should be providing readers who are struggling a little bit with well i'm really enjoying this sort of upsurge in um what we call high-low text to this uh the idea that um, obviously some children, by the time they're in junior phase, seven plus kind of age, they, they might have been struggling with reading for quite a long time now. But that doesn't mean that they're babies and they don't want to read infant mm -hmm. texts. And asking them, as sadly I've seen happening in some schools over the years, you've got to go and choose a book from the infant phase of the school, you know. And mm -hmm. so reading then becomes a humiliating experience, which is never going to lead to reading for pleasure, I don't think. Um, so having, having texts that are accessible in their word, the correct word reading level, but don't feel like books for little children and have content, um, subject matter, of course, subject matter that is appropriate for, for children of, of that age that are still very easy to read, but also have a feel. You know, the, the, the idea of, of high-low texts has been around for quite a long time. We, I remember talking about them 20 years ago. Um, and that idea of uh, the reading level here, but the, the, the content being up here. But they've always had a, a schemey feel and they've always been skinny because the whole thing is that they, they can't have that many words in. That's one of the big drivers, obviously, for publishers. And it's so exciting to see these because, you know, this is, this is a, an easy read book. Um, but it's actually got a spine. Uh, There's just the genius idea of, of actually putting two themed books in one, fiction and non-fiction together in a single book, instantly makes it a thick enough book. And it's actually slightly thicker than this non-high-low book. Um, so that children in the same class can look like they're reading the same sorts of level of text, even though this one is significantly easy to read. The other thing that just because children's decoding level might be, you know, in year four, they might be decoding like a, a year one or a year two child or something like that. Um, they're not a year one or year two child. It's not just that their tastes are different. They've had more time on earth and more experiences. So you can take a few more risks and, and things like this do, do fun things with fonts. Um, this is extremely bold, but you know, fonts that jump around, fonts that suggest movement and so on, that you probably wouldn't dare to do with scheme books aimed at infant age children. Um, so it, it, that is fun, it's engaging, but it also makes those children not feel like babies. It's another aspect of that, the look and feel of, of something along those lines. So I think things like this just, obviously loads of children, including myself um, as a child, got lucky just by finding something that was the right interest level, the right reading level and all that, and it were, but far too many children didn't. And things like this just hopefully take some of that luck away so that you, the, the, they may still discover something else that fires them up. But there's this, something like this, so that there's, there's much less of a risk factor of children just going, oh, it's not for me, it's, it's babyish, it's humiliating, it's, I, I hate it. Um, more, 
this feels right. You know, this feels like a book for someone my age and I can succeed. And that sense of pride there. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, we always used to say nothing succeeds like success, don't we? And, yeah. and so that constant experience of, and, and graduated success, because these are not just, they don't just feel right, but they're obviously, they're graduated in, in levels yeah. so that children can gradually be challenged with their word reading levels and, and always experience success with texts that are fun and engaging and teach them stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I'm going to ask one closing question then, and that is that um, if you had one piece of advice for teachers about encouraging reading for pleasure and motivation, what would it be? And I'm going to start with you. Actually, I've said one piece of advice, the, the most important advice, whether that's one or two or three pieces. Yeah, I'll definitely cheat and have at least two, <laughs> possibly more. Um, so I suppose the first thing I would say is it's really... There's been a huge drive and a huge awareness of reading for pleasure over the last few years, going, you know, going back the last decade, I suppose. Um, but it's easy sometimes to think, well, we, we're doing reading for pleasure. It's a thing that we do. We, we, we do some reading time on a Friday afternoon and we call it reading for pleasure time. Or these are our reading for pleasure books that we can take and pick. And, and But actually, you know, in, in the schools I've visited where they've got it really right, it's something that, that weaves right through, you know, the fabric of everything they do right through the curriculum. So rather than sort of think we've done it, tick, let's move on. Actually, it's a way of thinking about everything. So when we think about an English lesson, when we think about, you know, what we're going to read next to children, we're thinking, okay, how can I teach them what I want them to learn? Mm -hmm. But also, how can I make this pleasurable? How can I make this interesting? How can I make children at the end of this think, wow, isn't reading brilliant? Or isn't that book brilliant? So, you know, the time spent doing that is really difficult for a teacher because life is busy and there's a million other things to try and do. But to try and sort of spend that time doing that might be one of the most useful things we can do. So that's number one. Number two, I suppose I would just foreground how good it is to share a book together. Um, you know, for lots of children at home, you know, they're lucky enough to have that experience. They learn to how brilliant books are because they're sitting on someone's lap or they're curled up next to someone and they get a book read to them and it's fantastic. But, you know, there are children that perhaps don't get that. And if they don't get it from school, they won't ever get these things showcased to see how, how brilliant reading is. Um, I think also as well as, you know, reaching out to the individual and saying, look, oh, this is brilliant. It's, it, it, it's that team effort. So when you have shared reading or a reading lesson, we're all reading the same text together. You know, we've all got that now in common, whether it's an idea from the text or some language or something we can talk about or play together. We've all got that together. It's, you know, it's our team rather than just, you know, me individually reading. So mm. going back to what you're saying about social reading, mm. you know, the more opportunities we can find to engineer social reading right across the curriculum, the better, I would say. Yeah. Okay, is that your two anymore? That's more? my two, <laughs> and I'll just jump in later on with this. <laughs> Sarah? Um, okay, so I'm probably going to come up with two as well then. I think one of the things is the importance of book provision and making sure that books that are available within the school library or the reading corners really reflect the types of things that children are interested in because it's really difficult, if not impossible, to inspire a love of reading unless children do have access mm -hmm. to good quality books. Um, and I guess the other piece of advice is just not to leave this to chance. I think for too long teachers have been focusing more on the mechanics of reading, but actually there are a lot of skills involved in supporting children to choose books that they'll really connect with as well. Um, and I think if teachers can deepen their knowledge of principles to support motivation and engagement, that can really help. And I think that the readerful teacher resources that we've created are really great introduction to that. Mm -hmm. I think it's really empowering actually that 
what your research is saying is that there are things that we can do in the environment around reading mm -hmm. which will cultivate motivation. It's not just not just the books themselves by any Absolute, means. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Sarah. Same question to you then, Lindsay. Okay, and same two answer kind of <laughs> approach. Um, I think number one, you've got to have you've got to have stuff that that is at the right reading level so that they don't fail, but is also not going to embarrass them. You know, that's just that has to be the case because either that you can't have a thing of you're either going to fail or you're going to feel humiliated. You know, that, that that's no that's no good at all. Um, but I think the the other thing is is um, is to understand that that you can enjoy being read too and you can enjoy lovely you know experience of books and everything but you will only be able to do that on your own you know on a on a stormy day at home if if you can read fluently and to understand that 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 fluency comes from lots of experience and it's this this potentially virtuous cycle that for so many children is a vicious cycle of I'm not fluent therefore I don't read therefore I'm not fluent and 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 um, and doing everything that we can to to support that and I think the arguments around how we teach reading in schools for so long have been either end you know like we've just got to teach the skills we if only we can make them passionate about it and actually you've got to do them all haven't you got to do all of it you, they've got to have the skills and they and it's not do one and then do the other it's, 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 you've got to do it all and you've got to do it all. Having said, it's not do one, then do the other. I'd say just observation, and I don't know if there's any research around this, but children who come from homes where they've had lots of lovely stories, they do tend to master the skill of reading faster, but just observationally. Yeah. So that sort of very early love of, of reading, being read to and sharing stories and everything with, with preschool children seems to lead to um, that, that a, a faster mastering of the phonic code and, and faster acquisition of fluency and all the rest of it. So there's something in that. But overall, I think, you know, skill and pleasure side by side coming together and skill lessons being pleasurable even, who, who, who'd who have thought, you know. So things, think, bringing it all together and not just having this ongoing argument, are we doing skill or are we doing pleasure and, you know, and all that sort of thing. It's got to, it has to come together if we're going to create children who not only want to read but have the, have the skills to bring yeah. to it. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much. It's been a really, really good discussion. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.